The scripture reading today is from John chapter 21, verses 1 through 12a. Hear the word of the Lord. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he showed himself in this way. Gathered there together were Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just after daybreak, Jesus stood on the beach, but the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, you have no fish, have you? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net to the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because there were so many fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on some clothes for he was naked and jumped into the lake. But the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, only about a hundred yards off. When they had gone ashore, they saw a charcoal fire there with fish on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, a hundred and fifty-three of them. And though there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray as we begin our sermon time. Living, loving God, help us to stop and help us to quell the distractions in us and around us. May we hear your voice through John's gospel. Please keep the messenger out of the way and the message before us in this time together and all week long. We pray in the name of Jesus, our living hope. Amen. So can you believe that Easter was just last Sunday? I hope you were here to see the sanctuary filled to overflowing and oodles of kids scampering around. I hope the hallelujah chorus is still ringing in your ears. I hope you're still filled with awe and wonder at the empty tomb and the surprising good news of the resurrection. That would be wonderful. But in some ways, it also feels like Easter was about nine years ago. 
For many people, the empire struck back on Monday morning, or maybe if you were lucky, on Tuesday morning. The ordinary things that empty our souls, drain our energy, and weaken our resolve have not gone away. And then on Friday, the extraordinary happened. One mile from our campus, just down Van Ness Street, the culture of death exploded in the actions of a sniper-style shooter. The gunman fired at a school that kids from our church go to. He fired at random people on the street. Our families are okay, but four people were injured too critically. The streets were full of sirens and police cars and SWAT teams. There were those gut-wrenching scenes of terrified parents being reunited with their children, and the helicopters could be heard for miles and hours. Who is my neighbor? These are our neighbors. The gunmen, and the victims, and the police, and the school families, and everyone else who was involved. This is our neighborhood, our usually tranquil neighborhood. And none of it seems like a post-Easter, post-resurrection world. Except that it is exactly like the post-Easter, post-resurrection world of Scripture. Jesus' disciples were still living in the empire that killed Jesus, the empire that would have been perfectly happy to see them dead too. Even after the first Easter, Pontius Pilate was still governor. The Roman soldiers were still going about their jobs, which included plenty of crucifixions. And the pagan temples were still full. On a more personal level, think about the disoriented state Jesus' disciples were in after the first Easter. They had heard the good news. They knew that something literally earth-shattering had happened. According to John's gospel, most of them had seen the risen Lord on Easter night when he appeared to them in a locked room. They knew it was Jesus and they rejoiced. They heard him say, peace be with you, as the Father has sent me so I send you. And according to John's gospel, it happened again a week later, this time when Doubting Thomas was present. Jesus was visibly, tangibly, bodily present among them. And again he said, peace be with you. But then came the day and the weeks after this is where John 21 picks up the story. Scholars have spent a good deal of time looking at the seams of the story in John's Gospel and the other Gospels too. John chapter 21 reads like an epilogue, but for the purposes of understanding what it means to be post-Easter, post-resurrection people, the story is more important than its seems. 
This is part of the witness of the early church and God's word to us. The story begins with a simple little phrase, after these things. Those three words are both the simplest throwaway transitional phrase and the full weight of life as we know it. After these things in John's gospel includes life after the incarnation, after the miracles, after Jesus' death and resurrection, and after those first shocking post-resurrection appearances. For the disciples, after these things meant after having their lives turned upside down by the one who called them away from their families and their fishing boats. After euphoric highs, betrayal, and dangerous lows. After crushing disappointment, and after having their lives turned upside down again by the resurrection of the Lord. After these things is where we live. After all the choices that have shaped us, the ones we repent of and the ones we give thanks for. After Christ's call on our lives, whether we have embraced it from the first moment or tried to run from it. After eviscerating losses and the birth of fragile hope. After narrow misses and direct hits from disaster. After success in the world's eyes and humiliating failure. After losing community and finding it. After having experienced Easter and a sniper shooting in the same week. After these things. Maybe we can relate to a bunch of exhausted fishermen running on empty. Running from Jerusalem back to the old way of life. Running on empty stomachs after a long night of casting their nets in the water and coming up empty. Running on hope born of an empty tomb, but unsure of what that would mean for the rest of their lives. After these things, Jesus showed up and filled them up. The presence and provision of the risen Lord changed both the disciples' current situation and their future trajectory. The presence and provision of the Lord helps us to live in our post-Easter world. This story takes place at the Sea of Tiberias, which is the empire name for the Sea of Galilee. It's a fishing story with very clear staccato, almost Steinbeck-like phrases. There are six disciples gathered, and Simon Peter announces, I am going fishing. His friends say, we will go with you. So they go out fishing in a boat, which was customarily done at night because that's when you would catch fish. Except that night, they caught nothing. Imagine the fatigue and the frustration they would have felt at the end of that night. But you don't have to imagine it. You know 
what it feels like. I think everyone knows the feeling of doing something the best way you know how and coming up empty. Whether it's for a night, a season, or for a very long time. Then just after daybreak, as the darkness starts to lift, the risen Jesus is standing on the beach. This is a moment of contrasts between darkness and light, between despair and hope, between what the disciples don't know and what Jesus does know, which is everything. The disciples do not know it's Jesus, but he knows they haven't caught any fish. I love how kindly Jesus speaks to them, although presumably he would have been calling out over the water to them about a hundred yards off in the morning stillness. Children, you have no fish, do you? Jesus knows exactly how empty that boat is. And he knows exactly how empty your tank is. He knows when you are running on empty and how your tank got so empty. The refilling of the boat and of our lives comes through the power of Jesus' word. Jesus says to them, cast the net to the right side of the boat and you'll find some fish. He knows where the fish are. And he knows where the source of fulfillment lies for each one of us. Jesus knows what they need to do differently to stop coming up empty. If they will listen. Clearly those disciples' best efforts, the best application of their experience and knowledge, the way they've always done it, is coming up empty. They need to pay attention and cast their nets somewhere else. One of my post-pandemic fears is that we as a culture and we as the church are going back to the way we've always done things without having spent ample time listening to what God has been trying to tell us for the past two years. Where are we rushing back to cast our nets the way we've always done it, but coming up empty? Where are we investing our time, our family's time, and our community's time on that which is familiar, but not filling? I'm a fan of really good one-sentence prayers, and one of the most powerful is Jesus, show me where to cast my net. Pray that with me now. Jesus, show me where to cast my net. Jesus, show us where to cast our nets. Keep praying that prayer, and the answer may be surprising. In any case, Jesus' disciples were very surprised by the huge catch of fish. But the fish were not even the main gift. With the miracle of provision and abundance came the recognition of Jesus himself. The disciple whom Jesus loved, traditionally thought to be John, son of Zebedee, was the first to get it. 
He knew that the tangible miracle of fish had a source, and that source was standing on the beach. So the first disciple said to Peter, It is the Lord. And Peter sprang somewhat comically into action, torn between wanting to see Jesus right that instant and some recognition that putting on clothes would be the same respectful thing to do. Peter then threw something on and started swimming, leaving everyone else to deal with the fish. One cool note about the Gospel of John is that it's framed by Jesus' miracles of abundance in Galilee, which are moments when Jesus reveals himself to his followers in everyday settings. Jesus' first miracle was turning water into wine at a wedding in Cana when a party was running on empty. And when the disciples were just beginning their journey with him. At the end of their earthly journey with Jesus, here Jesus is again, making himself known in a miracle of provision. These miracles demonstrate his care for those who are running on empty, and they are signs of his divine power. Specifically, this sign includes a huge catch of 153 fish, which Peter eventually does help to haul in without tearing the net, another small miracle. Now, whenever there's a number in the Bible, people get very excited about trying to decode it. Ooh, 153 fish. What's the double entendre? Did 153 signify the number of Jesus' followers at that point? Is there a significance to the fact that when you add the numbers 1 through 17 together, you get 153? Is this the sum of the numeric values assigned to Hebrew, some Hebrew letters? Was 153 just an eyewitness detail intended to emphasize the magnitude of the catch? No one really knows. But if we're looking to understand double entendres in the text, the verb for to haul in is actually a lot more interesting. The verb for hauling in nets of fish is used twice here. And it's also the same Greek verb used in John 6:44 when Jesus says, "No one can come to me unless drawn in by the Father who sent me, and I will raise that person up on the last day." Literally, no one can come to me unless hauled in by the Father who sent me. Jesus also said in John 12, 32, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Literally, it says, I will haul in all people to myself. Have you ever thought of yourself as being hauled in by Jesus like a flopping fish? The image is so much less dignified and so much less intellectual than we might like. But it's a perfect reminder that God does what we cannot do on our own. And it's a perfect double entendre for the work of Simon Peter, whom Jesus called to be a fisher of men. But before Peter and the disciples got down to work, Jesus called them to come 
have breakfast with him on the beach. Jesus was cooking bread and fish, and he invited Peter to bring more fish from the catch. Fishermen who've been working all night get hungry. People running on empty get hangry. That, combina that combination of hungry and angry that looks good on no one. People running on empty need to stop and refill. Jesus showed up and filled them up. After breakfast, he would get into a serious spiritual conversation with Peter, but not before letting him stop and sit and eat. Come and have breakfast. Stop, sit, eat with Jesus. There is as much miraculous provision in that breakfast as there was in the full nets of fish. The post-resurrection Jesus provided food and his presence for his dazed, disoriented post-Easter followers. Jesus still comes to his dazed, disoriented post-Easter people when we come together in little groups and ask him to show up. Jesus still comes to tired, pandemic-weary modern disciples when we stop, sit, and eat together around tables. The Holy Spirit makes it possible for us to be filled up when we are running on empty. There's a great deal of condemnation these days for the prosperity gospel, and rightly so. The prosperity gospel says that Jesus pours out blessings on true believers in the form of material wealth. This popular twist on the gospel ignores the faithfulness of the poor the world over, it glorifies consumption, which scripture condemns, and it misses the point of salvation. But don't throw out the good gospel of provision with the bad prosperity gospel. When people who are running on empty, physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually, encounter the risen Lord, being filled and provided for is a sign of his power and presence. The gospel of provision is not about having our bank accounts filled, but about having our bankrupt, empty souls filled by the saving grace of Jesus. The gospel of provision is not about being fulfilled by the relationship buffet of the world, but about having our deepest hunger to be loved, filled by God. The gospel of provision is not about being famous, but about being known. It's not about being beautiful, but about being healed. The gospel of provision is not about being the most brilliant one, but about humbly letting Jesus tell us where to cast our nets. The gospel of provision is not about connecting with a glorious past, but about the promise of sharing in Christ's 
future glory. The gospel of provision is not about achieving more in our culture, but about achieving more of what matters to Jesus. And that brings us to one last inescapable twist. The risen Lord who fills us and provides for us will then expect us to provide for others physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. There is a part two to Breakfast on the Beach where Jesus asks if Peter truly loves him and then challenges him to live out that love by feeding his sheep. It's a challenge for Peter and every disciple. So keep reading in John 21 to see what those of us who have been fed and filled and saved are supposed to do next. Let's pray. Living, loving God, we have celebrated the resurrection of your Son, and we are forever changed by his defeat of sin and death. And yet, we still live in a culture of brokenness and death. When we are lost and overwhelmed, Lord, reveal yourself to us. Help us to stop what we are doing and listen to your voice. Show us where you would have us cast our nets. Then bring us safely to shore. Make us stop our frenetic, self-reliant efforts and sit at your feet. Fill us up with your vision for the world and feed us with your word. Please help each of us to feed and fill others as we have been fed and filled by you. Father, if there is anyone here today who has heard about the resurrection but does not know the resurrected one, I ask that you would haul them in to your loving embrace and reveal the risen Lord to them. We pray all this in his name. Amen.